Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As our regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. Our 10-minute lesson series, which gives you a very brief overview on a range of policy topics, touching on the most important areas that we think you need to know about. We have our seminar series, which is an opportunity to listen back to some of the best presentations from our many seminars and conferences. Experts such as Tony Fahey on housing, such as Anne Pettifor on a Green New Deal, such as Joe Larragui on a social contract, all are available to listen back to. And then we have our interview series. And today's episode is one of those. And I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Rory McKernan. Rory is an award-winning social innovator. He's a campaigner, a consultant, an author, a speaker. And in 2012, he was appointed to the Council of State by the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, where he served for seven years. Rory is also the host of the chart-topping Love and Courage podcast and host of the Creative Souls of Clare podcast. He's a regular contributor to the media on issues like social well-being and leadership and community engagement. And his book, Hitching for Hope, A Journey into the Heart and Soul of Ireland, is an Irish Times number one bestseller. He volunteers with a number of community and campaign groups and serves on the Trochra Board Committee for Public Engagement. Originally from County Cavan, he now lives in the west coast of Clare. We hope you enjoy it. So Rory, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. It's brilliant to see you. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Colette. I'm looking forward to the chat. Good, good. The first thing I want to ask you about, and there's so many things I want to ask you about, but the first thing I want to ask you about is you are currently working with Doris in Limerick, is it? Um, among others, actually, yeah, I, it's one of the groups I work with, uh, but I'm doing a, a significant amount of work with them. Yeah, they're, as you probably know, a migrant and refugee rights organization. They've been going for, I think, 22 years now. I should know because I helped organize the 21st anniversary recently. Um, uh, that was just a few months ago. And yeah, I'm really I've I've had a long time uh, interest in migration in general. Uh, both Irish migration and and migration all around the world. And then in more recent years, just the whole area of direct provision and in particular. So I made a conscious decision that I wanted to do more work to be of more service in that particular area. And I was very much attracted to Doris because they have that kind of grassroots um ethos i suppose and just really good organization good people good integrity and they're also um their physical office is based in not too far it's an hour away from me but uh, i live in the in lahinch county clare so it's within the region anyway um but yeah i've been working alongside them for about six months now and really i i, I want to say i enjoy it but i don't always enjoy it because it can be it can be quite harrowing to hear the stories and the testimonies. And when I say harrowing, it's not my burden, if you like. So it's just even this morning here in some case studies of um, Somali refugees and others going in looking for PPS numbers and looking for assistance from the, the authorities and being refused, whereas you know, we have a kind of a two tier system emerging now in response to Ukraine. And anyway, it's a whole huge arena that there are many things that could be said about it. But yes, I am working with Doris is the short answer from the long answer there. Well, I'm going to I'm going to keep going with that because you raised a really, really significant point that is being kind of tinkered with around the edges, but isn't really part of the dominant narrative around what's happening with Ukraine at the moment which is there is such a two-tiered system, as you say. So we have this very open welcome. We've ministers at the borders. We have PPS numbers in the airports, practically. Um, we have, you know, 21,000 housing units or, or kind of accommodation spaces for refugees coming from Ukraine. And yet our response to so many other similar crises has been very, very different. In terms of the work that Doris is doing and the work that you're doing with them, you know, like how does that fit? How how can you shift that narrative, do you think? Well, firstly, I think, you know, uh, it's, it's difficult when you're in civil society. Often we're caught with attending to the most pressing needs of the moment. 
and you know you're you end up in a humanitarian response system and you know if the wound is bleeding it needs that you need to stem the bleeding if you like um horrible analogy but um you know in the case of um several million ukrainian people being um displaced internally and externally they need beds they need safety they need sanctuary so there's there's absolutely no getting away from our moral and um political and social obligations there and and just finding people a safe bed in a safe place but like that it does beg that question and and i suppose what are our duties to all people um and they, they you end up in a kind of a ethical philosophical quandary to some extent because uh but there are questions that do need to be asked you know and we 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 have signed up to protocols and conventions um, but we haven't ultimately honored them. And so within this uh, are a number of questions as to who is treated, how, uh, and particularly when we see people arriving, say, from the likes of Afghanistan. And, the, for instance, the Irish government um, responded to agree uh, 500 places on the Afghan settlement program. And 500 just doesn't, you know, it doesn't go far enough. And then we're into a whole series of questions. Well, how many can we cope with? So on and so forth. They're into a whole arena of the housing crisis. So what I find is that each question leads to another question, but they all sort of point back to an origin source for me, which is, um, I suppose, what social justice Ireland is about. You know, what does a more functioning, coherent balanced organized society look like that isn't always running around in crisis emergency response notwithstanding that crises and emergencies will always occur but that we will be so much better placed so what we have now are checks for tens of millions of euro being written on a weekly basis for hoteliers around the country provide emergency accommodation and that has happened before for emergency direct provision and emergency homelessness and it's just not a good use of money also um, so there are a number of problems that can be attended to with just better joined up thinking better economics better social policy and I think that's why the likes of your organization is important to do that policy work as well and um, not just the research but also the advocacy so you know, but in the meantime, it is it is quite troubling and it can be quite distressing for people that have been in per, perhaps direct provision for several years now and are seeing um, a state that says they care for one group more than the other. And one one former refugee is is more important than the other. And that's really what's happening. And we're going to we're going to really need to look at that. And I don't think um not too many leaders have addressed it straight up, but Leo Varadkar did, and he more or less said, well, what do you expect, you know? And I think the subtext is often there that they're white European and so on and so forth. So if that is the case, then we're into a conversation about race, perhaps, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's something I'm, I'm part of, a very honoured actually to be part of a migrant roundtable. And it is something that has been raised at that in terms of, well, Let's just call this what it is. And it is racism. Um, and that is what we're seeing in terms of policy. You can't deny the evidence in front of your, your face. Um, but in terms of, you know, addressing it, you know, that somebody was saying at that group, uh, I thought very insightfully, well, we expect that the Ukrainian crisis will be temporary. We this is the extension of the, the temporary welcome. So it's, it's almost like when you hold a dinner party. And, you know, you're very welcoming to people coming in and you're delighted to see them and you'll share your experiences and you'll share your food and you do all of that. But then you're waiting for them to go home. Um, and it's almost like that, that we have this expectation that these white middle class Europeans will eventually go home. And that may well be feeding into why the policy response is the way that it is. Um, but on an, an, I suppose on a more kind of policy based side, what I'm trying to look at out of it is, well, okay, this that is what it is, but let's look at the opportunity here. If that is how we can engage and we can support refugees, then why not use that as the blueprint from here on in? 
Yeah. Why not look yeah. at that as being a best model? We had a very similar conversation around COVID when COVID hit. Um, you know, we were immediately deploying welfare supports. We were immediately deploying supports mm. for uh, business, small businesses in particular. You know, we had stay at home orders. We were very protectionist. And, you know, overnight we had ostensibly a single tier healthcare system. Mm. So, you know, again, if we can do that in an emergency and we know that that's the right thing to do, then surely that's that's just the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and speaking of COVID, I, that kind of brings me nicely, actually, um, to the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. You set up Spun Out and it's an incredible organization. And what I was thinking of, actually, I was because I've been I've been thinking of it quite a lot, actually, in the context of COVID um, and the fact that supports for younger people are so desperately needed, whether it's younger people who have had a very disrupted education system or who have suffered the, the consequences in terms of precarious housing during a pandemic or whether it's through um through good job losses, because we know that that impacted younger people more than than others. Um, and I was doing a piece out in Carlo actually recently um, with a chaplain. And he said, you know, young people are really, really experiencing it at the moment. We've gone from a pandemic into a war. And like this is their reality. This is just their lived reality. Can I ask you a little bit about that in terms of, you know, looking at it or considering young people in all of this? Um, yeah, well, firstly, I would say it's it's quite a long time now since my spun out days. So um, I'm not I'm not on the cold face, so to speak. And um, I think I'm gone there almost 10 years. So, yeah, so I do keep an eye every now and then I get their updates and all the rest. But I can't, I can't speak directly to the work, but I know they have a great new text message uh, support service. That is great to see as well. Um, but look, I, I think, um, you know, being young in life is just one of those periods where there's perhaps an additional vulnerability because, you know, there's additional developmental needs. You're still trying to find out who you are and where you fit. And by virtue of that, it can make life quite complicated. Um, you know, there are different roads to go down in terms of your own mental health um, your sexual development. Um, work, rights, travel, education, all of that. So, you know, one sort of bad turn, whether it's something that happens to you or making a wrong decision can can have massive consequences. Now, you can argue anything that's relevant to young people can be equally relevant to a 50 year old or 60 year old in different ways. But it's just that it's at that such a formative time. And I think therefore providing the wraparound supports, it's not it's not a hundred miles different than talking about parenting in the sense that we, the society as a whole, ideally would give its all to ensuring those young people um, are, are as well and developed and supported as possible because the benefits, not just to the citizen, but to the society is going to be vast and massive. And you're going to have, you know, less impact down the road when it comes to um, addressing things that went wrong back down the line, so to speak. And particularly then, you know, in the mental health arena, we know that a lot of um, a lot of anxieties um, come up for for as is a natural part of life also. But say the average 14, 15, 16 year old experiencing any form of anxiety um, that if it is unattended, Two, it can manifest into uh, more pronounced and serious issues, for instance, whether it be depression, eating disorders, addictions and so on. Uh, and we know suicide remains uh, a, a, a huge issue, particularly for young men as well. So um, I, as it happens, I'm studying to be a, a counsellor and a psychotherapist at the moment as well. and. Um, I I suppose I'm drawn on those threads from my own life as a as an individual, but also the work with Spun Out and other groups over the years and seeing that that preventative work is is so important. And this also relates to the work around migrants and refugees is like the more preventative we can be thinking, the more holistic, the more joined up, 
then the better it just is, the better everything is, you know, and um, I, I think, um, you know, right now for young people that like housing, for instance, is is another massive one and um, and employment and, and poor employment and poor rights and so on. So, look, you know, two years out of my life, it, it has been it has had some challenges. But two years out of a 16 to an 18 year old, it's it's just such a serious chunk of their lives at a, at a critical time. And I can put it in context and I, you know, I can see it for what it is to some extent. And I, I do worry and particularly to be sheltered and confined into a bedroom or a, an apartment or a shared space and to not have those social developmental outlets. It's, it's really worrying. So hopefully now that there's going to be a breather on that or more than a breather that 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 we're out of the worst of it and um, but i do think there's some repair work needed and some healing work to to allow people to kind of come together again and i'm hopeful that the coming uh summer will bring parties and festivals and music and allow people to kind of enjoy themselves and let loose a bit and we often see letting loose Sometimes we see it in a negative context in, in that it can cause damage. But I think that's also um, something I've seen over the years in relation to, um, I suppose, our uh, tendency of how sometimes we as Irish people, including myself, have socialized. Uh, sometimes it it's like uh, this repressed <laughs> energy comes flying out of the box and causes carnage and and the crack factor can be magnificent but the uh, damage factor can also be very significant so again I, I just think like creating a more balanced um a balanced society that isn't such a pressure cooker is is what i'd like to see anyway yeah, I mean, this is turning into the podcast of truly awful analogies. Um, but I like that thing of, you know, finding out what the the actual causes are. And that's a real key thing for us in Social Justice Ireland. You know, that that thing of that analogy of the, the babies in the river and you can take them all out of the river, but somebody needs to go back and find out why they're falling off the bridge. Again, dreadful analogy. Um, but it is that thing of, yeah, absolutely, there needs to be. And so many of the things that you talked about, whether it's it's in terms of mental health, whether it's in terms of uh, migrancy, whether it's in terms of housing, is there needs to be that response. There needs to be that, that you know, responsiveness to the emergency. But there also needs to be the going back and looking at, well, what is causing this and addressing that and looking at, at that. Um, another thing that that you raised, and it, it's that thing of it takes a village, you know, as a, as a parent, you're told it takes a village. Um, like I live, I don't live near my family at the moment, we, we moved. Um, but yes, th- those kind of connections are really important and connections with your neighbours or connections with, with others, with, you know, other parents or with other kids or with, you know, mm. with friends, really, really important. And there was a, a really interesting study from the CSO that came out last week around trust and how people, you know, in different areas trust each other at different levels, whether it's through trust of government or trust of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's quite interesting to see the differences between kind of the, the urban rural or the towns and cities. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is also something that you do beautifully and you do beautifully with your podcast as well around that that whole idea of connection and how important that is. Can you talk to me a bit about that around, you know, particularly around your kind of hitching for hope stuff on the, on the book that you did, very well done, by the way, mm-hmm. um, but also just in relation to that that connection between people, between everybody, you know, it's not just about your immediacy, but it's it's the kind of the global aspect of it. Yeah, um, well, I, I see connection as like the glue that binds everything together ultimately you know and when i use the word holistic like it's the ultimate in holism where all the dots are joined but that's goes right back into mind body soul territory and i see you know a healthy a healthy planet a healthy society a healthy individual a healthy community as connection with self connection with each other and connection with ecology and I, I purposely say it at those three levels um, because I think that if any one of those levels is out of sync, then there's massive trouble. So, for instance, um, disconnection with yourself, 
you end up on a on a particular road that isn't serving you and perhaps then isn't serving others. You're unhappy in your job, you're unhappy in your relationship, you're angry, you're depressed, you're eating bad, you're getting into conflict, so on and so forth. Um, if you've no connection with family, with supports, with community, you don't feel part of something, you don't belong, you're isolated, you're lonely. Again, it's going to be lots of trouble there as well. I don't think we can live in an atomized world, no matter how good your um, streaming provider or internet is. Um, you know, box sets can only give you so much joy in life. There has to be a lot more. And that is that experience that you have when you're part of something bigger than yourself, which is the community or the society. And then the bigger level, you know, the fact that um, glaciers are melting around us and our weather patterns are changing and our food and our water um, are in peril and the fish are um, being taken from the ocean at a, and that languages and cultures and forests are being destroyed that like if we want to, you know, is the, the recent movie name called Don't Look Up, if we want to look up and see the asteroid flying towards us, that that is one. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they're all interconnected in the in the sense that if we can go back to the inner level and the individual level, then we might start to see that we are also part of ecology and that we don't necessarily need to view life and um, social, economic, personal development as something extractive something to be consumed, something to be exploited, something to be materially developed. So I suppose that might point to a, to a sense of uh, belief systems or spirituality in terms of like what 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 do you see the purpose of your life as or what do you see the, the purpose of being alive as? Is it to get as much stuff as you <laughs> as you'd like? Um, is it to build much bigger towns, cities, structures, you know, and or, or is is the ultimate vision here to uh, create more um, more connected societies, more balanced societies, where a greater number of us can can actually be in harmony with ourselves, with each other, and with the planet? So it sounds very utopian uh, to some extent, but I think that how many more reports? uh statistics and warnings do we need to read to say that this whole thing's out of kilter and i do think like if we don't go back to the source of that river and see what is causing so much of the carnage downriver, then we're just going to be mopping up carnage you know and that's not really a healthy vision for me that's not something i want to be part of it's it's it can be very noble and it can be very um addictive to some extent like i think people can get involved to like I, I suppose this is where a slight critique of the charity sector can kick in where you know you're just like happy to be helping all the time but that that can be fine but is that sensible that we just want to be helping and not actually stepping back and going as you said like why is all the help required and that like for me it just points that it doesn't need to be this way absolutely doesn't need to be this way that there's an abundance of resources there's an abundance of everything for everybody essentially and that it's a distribution problem and it's a leadership problem so it's the same thing that we've been dealing with from since 1916 and 1913 and 1788 and you know it's about people and people power and democracy and more of us being involved and leading that conversation rather than being at the mercy of our commanders in chief that throw us a few scraps at the table and then we go running around banging into each other competing for the scraps and uh, i think that's where we need to put up a resistance as well yeah i mean i think you raise a really good point there in relation to you know how we engage with the charity sector and how how important the charity sector has become in terms of delivering government services or what should be state services. So, you know, I had a, a really good conversation a couple of years ago with Joe Whelan, formerly of UCC, he's now in, in Trinity, and he looks a lot at kind of social welfare, the welfare state, stabilization around welfare. Um, but he had a brainstorm, uh, you know, the RT brainstorm on cha the charity sector. And he was saying, you know, it's, it's obviously 
really valuable and it's not against anybody who's working in the charity sector um, or against the support or against the people who need the support. It's nothing to do with that. It's about why we need it in the first place. It's about what has created the situation that leads people to need the likes of innumerable homeless charities. You know, we have such an amount of them now and the, the cost is huge. But actually, if we take a step back, what what are the policies that have got us to here and what can we change? That means we don't we don't need to do this anymore. You know, the the amounts that are raised, the late, late toy show every year for various different charities, whether it's St. Vincent de Paul or it's, it's medical charities or children's charities. You know, why is that necessary in a functioning society, in a wealthy society? Yeah. That shouldn't be the case. And again, it's got nothing to do with the really, really good work that's being done by thousands of people in this sector. It's more about the the why behind that work. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think um, I think Ireland has a charity problem, basically. And um, I think we do pat ourselves on the back a lot for being so charitable and giving all the time the church gates and the school and the school sports club and whatever else it is. And look, None of those things are inherently bad things to be doing because it's somebody creating or, or somebody sharing a need and others trying to meet that need. But I suppose what you're saying as well is like, why is the need there? Why does why does a school need children to be fundraising for the school when you have what are called taxpayers and what should be taxpayers in the IFSC and everywhere else? Um, you know, that's that's the purpose of a modern social democracy where tax incomes can fund basic social services. And I think there's a generally an over-reliance on that. And, it, you know, sometimes it, it works to an extent, like you have your St. Vincent de Paul's and you have so many amazing groups out there that are filling the cracks. Like there could be family going homeless or hungry. And, you know, there, there are groups that will often not always meet that need, but therein lies the problem in that it's the inconsistency that we don't know that the charitable provision available in Port Leash is going to be equaled in Letterkenny, and often it's not. And we have groups that work with migrant populations or traveler groups in the Midwest that may not exist in, in the Southwest. And, um, you know, the, the coverage is left and they're often um, then there's often massive issues around, uh, for instance, governance in that you have tons of money floating around the place. And I would argue that there can be not always, but there can be competency issues as well. And look, there's competency issues in the state. There's competency issues in the corporate sector, they, you know, but um, I think there's just way too much outsourcing going on. And I think often we have an analysis of privatization being a bad thing when it's a commercial entity, but we don't often see privatization towards the charitable sector. Well, it, firstly, it isn't privatization classically, but it is an outsourcing. And so it's the question of like, well, what is our state for if if it relies and over relies on all these groups? But I think there does become a an ethical challenge whereby these groups of which I work with many of them. And, and as you said, the people involved, <laughs> nobody's actually to blame to one extent here. But at some point, who is stepping back to say, hang on a minute, because it suits the state, it suits the board and the staff of the provider to keep getting funded and they need salaries and so on and so forth. Um, so there has to be a stepping back, but it gets harder and harder to step back because um, there's people need to make a living as well. Now, you know, you and I know that there's often a critique then saying, well, Lord, there's all these people with all these jobs in the charity sector, but it's it's a tweet that I haven't sent yet, but it's one of those <laughs> ones where I'm like, hang on a minute, you know, oh, fair enough. There's a bunch of managers that get maybe sometimes 60 grand or 80 grand. There's a few on 100 and so on. But for the most part, charity workers are on 25 to 35 grand a year. And if they are renting, good luck with that. And I'm a renter myself um, and I still see salaries being advertised now for 30 grand a year. Um, that were, I remember starting out 20 years ago and it was also 30 grand a year. So uh, <laughs> anyway, that's a, a slight kind of, you know, going off course there. But yeah, I think like a massive strategic rethink of the entire state service provision is is absolutely required. And I also think there's massive cost savings can be made there all over the place. 
and the fact that if we have better policy, we won't need the charitable efforts so much. And again, it's not taken away from all the amazing work and the humanitarian aspect to that. Like colleagues in Doris, I know that they, you know, the CEO has the Doris mobile phone. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he brings home the mobile phone for the weekend so that if anybody calls in need, it's somebody will answer 24 seven. And that's above and beyond. And my experience in most charity workers do go above and beyond. So, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Certainly my experience of, of working in the charity sector and the, the kind of the civil society sector is there's a there's quite a lot of burnout in it because people yeah. do. They're on, quite, as you say, quite low salaries and they go above and beyond. I remember talking to somebody who had spent their weekend driving past a, a particular house because they were afraid this person was on suicide watch and there wasn't sufficient support in the area. So they took it upon themselves just to keep doing drive-bys, just to make sure the lights were you know, going yeah, on and off. Yeah. Um, and again, like that's so disruptive to your own mental health, your own well-being, but that's something they felt they needed to do because there was this gap. And one of the, like he raised this kind of huge issue around, well, what is the role of the state? What is the role of society? You know, we've been looking in Social Justice Ireland at the rebuilding of the social contract because we believe fundamentally it's broken um, because you have this kind of gap, this huge gap that is being, I suppose, being stuffed by the charity sector. But if you were to say, right, no charity sector anymore from tomorrow, there'd be the service users that mm. would, you know, obviously suffer, but then there'd be the staff of the charity sector that mm. would suffer because they themselves wouldn't be able to sustain themselves. So it, it requires a huge conversation around policy of what it is that we want society to look like. And if, if people aren't working in the charitable sector, then where do they put all of those skills? Where do they put all of those myriad of skills that they have um, and where where best placed would they be? Because, you know, in order to to create that utopia that you talk about, then if we're not going to create, you know, 300,000 job losses, we need to look at, well, how, how are people best deployed? And that brings us back again, I suppose, to that relationships conversation. So, you know, that right relationships with yourself, with your own self-improvement the right relationships with your community, you know, getting involved in community activities, with education, with, you know, just, with just caring work and all of those type of things then come into it. That isn't necessarily related to charitable work, but it's still, it's still an outlet for people. It's still something that people can, can get involved with. Yeah. Um, that, that point you made about the, um, the social contract, I think, is a really important one. And I think something has definitely occurred, particularly in the last, it's definitely last 20 years, but it's probably more so going back to, to, to Thatcherism and so on, you know, that I think we need to name that. And the fact that we talk a lot in Ireland about the Tories and increasingly, I think we, you know, there's a new sort of post-Brexit or pre-Brexit um, emergence of a sort of looking down our nose at the, at Britain to, you know, that we do things quite a bit better here and we're a bit more, uh, I'm not convinced that it's always the case. I think sometimes we do and that's laudable, but we have to be very careful there about that sort of sense of moral superiority, because I think more often than not, we, uh, we just hide it better as in there's Toryism and again, the, the, the neoliberalism is rampant here you know we have the same private school sort of set up here and many of the same class structures as the as the british have and so we've, we've a lot in common in that regard and um i think you know like then going back to the charity sector that the dismantling of community development projects and the the, the stripping back of local participation structures and uh you know phil hogan did quite a job on that in that that area that like the 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 like it feels like we've essentially had one party in power since the beginning of the state at, at this point I, I i don't know i've never heard a convincing sort of analysis to tell me what the fundamental differences are of the two and i mean there's big questions then for the Greens as to what role they serve or any other third party in that mix. And that's a, another conversation. 
Um, but for me, I'm out of patience with it all. And um, there has to become a point where you say, well, I've heard those promises. How many every five years have I heard the same set of promises? And OK, I get that there's practical, um, you know, there's wars and pandemics and there's every other thing. But at this point, I've heard too many housing ministers tell me about housing and I just I can't stomach it anymore. And I've also traveled enough and we don't even need to travel. You can you can Google it or you can listen to podcasts. You can read PDF reports. There are countries in the world that have housing for their people. You know, it's not like it's been made into this kind of abstract possibility that at some point in the future, we may all have a functioning society. All of these things are very much doable because we're we're kind of talking about health, education, housing. They're like basic tenets, you know, and I think if we kind of realign some of the priorities towards those, then that's what we'll get. But until the leadership has the value based and the vision based um, drive to make those things happen, they're simply not going to happen. So I think why have they not happened? For me, there was just one line that named it all in the last number of years, and that was one simple line by Peter McVeary in a media interview he did about housing and he said they are ideologically incapable of solving the problem and therein lies the problem is ideology you know uh, private personal profiteering based ideology where we have a country where vulture funds and cuckoo funds and whatever uh, you know foreign investors can sit on a laptop in Manhattan and play around with Irish people's lives, like families that have been here for generations and, and newcomers as well that want to build a decent future. And somebody's having it as their little stocks and bonds play thing on a mass scale that don't even set foot in the country or contribute anything towards the country. But what's worse than that is that our leadership that we pay are facilitating and not just facilitating, but actually encouraging that. And that's just wrong. And I think we have to hear that language come back into the discourse of right and wrong, because in its essence, for me, it's a moral issue. It's just immoral. And my wife mentioned it to her younger niece recently about the, I don't know how God talk. Maybe it was our own housing situation that came into the conversation and she was talking to her about the, the hedge funds and the cuckoo funds. And they, the young girl was like, that's wrong. They should be arrested. <laughs> and, you know, like, like they. <laughs> That's it. It's wrong. And, uh, you know, so um, but I, I again, I've gone off on one and I think you said something about um, you mentioned about the burnout and the the coming, bringing it sort of back home to um, I, I think all of these things, as I said earlier, are are intrinsically connected. And the more broken and fragmented things are and the more disparate, the more we will be running around and frantic and not enjoying our lives and there is no reason we cannot be enjoying our lives because uh, like this is where i'm going to bring it all back home to like what is the point of it all you know and like really like you know a good day a good day or a good week can be going out solving lots of problems working really hard helping people building a business whatever it is you're you want to do but there has to be a sweetness to it all or else life just becomes a, a, a grind and a misery. And it has been for too many people for too long now. And I think that's what's given rise to the likes of populism in recent years of the Trump variety and so on, Virage. Um, we can dismiss a lot of that and, and it's easy to do so. But there is an underlying brokenness that has led to that, that people want. They want to rip it up. They're just not prepared to grind things out like this. And I understand that. Um, but I think if we're going to rip it up, let's let's uh, rip it up in a way that doesn't, you know, turn on each other. And also that we can build something much more, much more, much better, because like they, we talk about Russian oligarchs, but we don't necessarily talk about Western oligarchs. Why, why is the word oligarch just mm -hmm. used for Russians? And it's the same problem in another way is that West so-called Western democracy is overly influenced by the, the the billionaire class and it's gone back to the bernie sanders analysis and that needs to be ultimately tackled we had big moments with the occupy movement and so on but the analysis has been lost somewhere in the mix as well and i'm not convinced that 
the likes of Biden or um, <clears throat> Starmer in Britain or questions remain over which Irish parties or opposition parties are actually taking that fundamental, um, you know, it's not just a new social contract in Ireland, it's a new global social contract that we need here. Yeah, I mean, uh, something really struck me over the weekend and it was it was just when you were talking about, you know, salaries and precarious employment, um, that there was a, a graph tweeted out and it was talking about who couldn't afford to buy a home. And it's this, these are now the, the squeezed middles. The end of that squeezed middle is somewhere in the region of like over 150,000 a year. How the how is that a squeezed middle? Like that to me is obscene. It's insane that you know that that is what we're talking about now when we talk about housing. And I, I, I take your point absolutely about you know people in Manhattan who've never set foot in the country have that kind of you know almost like a marionette. You know that, that they have this kind of control. Um, and again, I think one of the most to me the most disgusting examples of that was in the the wraparound investment portfolios for social housing. It's like these, these are the most vulnerable people who need housing. And these are, these are in terms of them, the most marginalized, you know, we've gone from a, a kind of a workers housing or a labor housing, you know, back in the kind of late 1800s to poverty housing, you know, for those who really, really couldn't afford when the 10 purchase schemes came in, couldn't afford anything you know, to, to be able to buy it. So they had to stay on the, the rental side um, and that created, you know, an entirely different demographic around social housing and all the stigma that went up, mm. that went with that. And as somebody yeah. who grew up in social housing, you know, I, I you know, it's completely, it's a, it's, it's a completely misnomer in terms of, you know, the, the kind of ghettoization of it only because like it had nothing to do with the people. It had nothing to do with the housing. The houses were really well built. It had everything to do with the complete and utter lack of amenities, lack of services, lack of opportunities in all of those areas. Um, but it's it's now, you know, because that has become the preserve of the poor. And then we have these investments built on top of that because it's a guaranteed income. And it, to me, it's the, the greatest abdication of responsibility of the state. You know, you're in terms of your if you want to talk kind of hierarchies of need you know, shelter is one of our mm -hmm. basic needs. Mm -hmm. And to be making that an investment opportunity to me is just so abhorrent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, like our, our current housing minister, it was revealed that he previously had been investing in these funds himself, you know, and it's like, why, why, how and why do you go into a life of public service if that's that's your hobby or what is that, you know, like, at, at what point did you not earn enough money that you needed to sort of and, and where did you get your, your 30 or 100 or 200 grand spare? Now, whatever, it doesn't matter about him per se, but it's it's just but you know what? This has fed down everywhere. I'm seeing it amongst uh, people I know now that and and it, you have to be careful not to to um, to get overly righteous. But at the same time, I do feel a strong right and wrong line on this. Um, that I see people now aspiring to be landlords themselves because they've experienced um, the precariousness of being a tenant and being mistreated or overcharged and so on. And they now their dream is to own a second apartment or a second home or third home or whatever and become a landlord themselves. And that's just re-entrenching the whole thing. Like, is one house not enough? Like, get your gaff .com, <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> And and like I, it's particularly prevalent around me because I live in the West Coast and it's holiday home central and Airbnbs and people see the potential there. But I also see and I see this as a blow in, but I see people from and born the area being here for generations and generations. And I wonder how on earth are they, their families going to sustain living in this part of the world into the future when somebody who wants their second home or their third home just so they can play a few games of golf or whatever it is. And look, you know, they might have worked their ass off for 40 years and saved their pennies and they, you know, they, they deserve whatever dream they want to have. But it's the job of social policy and governance and leadership to decide, well, OK, we can't all have everything we want here. Do you know what I mean? So there's the question of the common good. And I think for me, there's too many people in distress right now, in particularly in the housing context, 
for there to not be some people um discommoded at this point that there has there have to be there has to be discomfort for the few so that there's more comfort for the masses at this point and it needs massive intervention and the rhetoric just doesn't cut it anymore like it really doesn't cut it and it does look like they're so bought into I suppose you know it's it's the disease of capitalism like it it's and when you have like it's many years now since I remember reading a report that said one third of the cabinet of the government's not this current government but previous one one third were landlords and it was one quarter of the entire doll when you broke that down most of them were in two of the main parties um I don't know what the up-to-date statistics of that are but that for me has to skew. I'm sure there's some people there that are wonderful landlords and will get all the pipes fixed and maybe don't charge a lot. And I have seen many good landlords myself and I've seen many bad tenants. So I get all the nuances there as well. But like it, you can't have a, a, a government of landlords that, that are trying to fix a problem that they don't understand. Or, you know, maybe I'm being too... Um, binary about that but it, 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 it something's evidently not getting through here and i have not heard an adequate answer as to why they won't do it other than they're addicted to the drug of the the finance machine and just on that i suppose on that whole point around you know creating that better society they there was back in october 2020 they, the government did publish just with the budget documentation a well-being framework or at least a consultation on the well-being framework and the first report of the, the group that was established in the Department of Taoiseach um, on that well-being framework was published last summer. Now since then there hasn't been a huge amount um, done on it but if I were to ask you as my final question um, in terms of the policy responses that are needed, if you were to really build a well-being framework, if you were to look at implementing that as a policy, what would be the things you would concentrate on? So I think for me, uh, first and foremost, is is Slauncha care. And um, I like we need a new health service, an entire new health service, not as tweak. Um, there's a lot of talk now about going back to regionalization and there's probably a lot of merit in that. But at the same time, 20 years ago, I had a job with the Northwestern Health Service when they were going through a, a period of reform and they were dismantling the regional health boards and building the national health service. So I don't want to see the same thing done badly in reverse. Um, and there there is generally all party across the board consensus towards building a national health service, but I don't think the will is there. And that's why we've seen massive resignations. And I think it looks like there's been a political patch up job done by Stephen Donnelly to put in place. new. It doesn't look serious to me or I haven't heard anyone take it seriously. Um, I respect voices um, that that there there are serious um there are serious advocates out here that 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 need to be put in place to, to lead this like it needs independent leadership, I think, you know, and I think I suppose the person that keeps coming to mind is Roisin Shartal and I'm not saying she's independent or anything, but there there are people that have been at this a very long time and I think like being an hour away from an A&E uh, room focuses the attention here living in Clare and it's an hour to Limerick and it's carnage there. The stories you hear, like I was involved in um, a direct vision centre before and there was a an emergency centre in Milltown Malbin. There was an Iraqi uh, asylum seeker broke his leg and had to be sent to Limerick and he said he never saw it like it. And he was coming from Iraq. Now, I don't know, like if I'm I'm misplacing stereotypes there on the Iraqi system, but like we do like to think of ourselves as having some kind of developed system here. And it, it's not, it's hellish. But the thing is, I think it's become almost to the point of normalized and accepted. And I because I, I like housing, we've heard the same promises over and over again. Now, the thing about health system is, is that they go much bigger than A&E departments. They, they go right into cervical cancer checks. Um, it's to do with your mental health. It's to do with somebody who's suicidal, being left stuck in an A&E full of drunk people on a Friday night. Uh, it's to do with the long term wraparound primary care supports. It's to do with a doctor having 20 minutes with you and not 15 minutes or five minutes. It's to do with going to the doctor, uh, going to the doctor 
or not going to the doctor because you do or don't have 60 euro to to go to the doctor um and again all of these things can ultimately save the state money because the less the more preventative holistic joined up thinking that we have the better so like it it it's not it's not the most um imaginative thing that i can answer with to say we need new health service but i do think it's probably the most transformative and i suppose the second would be that you know in general social change i think its biggest determinant can be um education you know and that if we can have education that educates for society and educates for culture and for wellness and for life and not just about learning rivers and mountains in northern italy then I think, you know, we can have people leaving as 17 year olds or 18 year olds feeling well prepared for life and well prepared. And I say for life, not for the workplace or the marketplace. Uh, and, you know, from your own previous work history, like about financial literacy and things like that, it's it's the whole gambit. So it's health relationships. And we can say, oh, well, these jobs are for parents and so on. And I'm actually going to throw sexual health ed- education in there, too, because I think that gets lost so often that I've seen promises of reform um, that, you know, particularly that young boys or girls or, or trans kids or whoever they are, um, just just feel better, feel more confident, feel accepted, feel welcomed. And um, again, I just I believe in that dream and promise and potential. And I used the word utopian earlier, but None of this really is utopian. It's just the way things should be, the way it could be, the way it can be. And again, questions of leadership. And I continually challenge myself to do all I can. Sometimes it's sometimes I actually give too much. And that's the self-care bit where I pull back and then sometimes not enough where I'm just, you know, I've fallen back and I need to push myself a bit. And I think that's the onus is on us all to ask ourselves those questions. You know, what can I do? And at the end of the day, that is that's all we can do is what we can do. And also then try and just enjoy life as we go, as I said earlier as well, and, and not carry the burden of it all too harshly, because I think those of us working in this area can sometimes carry the cross of affliction and society's woes and that ultimately doesn't serve us any of us wow so well put uh thank you so so much for that and for for all of your time rory i really do appreciate it this has been a fascinating conversation thank you so much thanks very much colette appreciate the chat thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed it for more information on a social contract on the wellbeing framework for Ireland, on immigration issues, or on a range of other policy areas, please do check out our website, socialjustice.ie. As always, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or any interviews you'd like us to conduct, please get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.